Would you stand with me and we're going to read the passage. We are in Luke twelve forty nine. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From that far from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. We thank God for his holy word. Please be seated. So if you noticed those five, really five distinct movements in the passage, five paragraphs, uh, they weren't uh, kind of soft uh, comforting sort of messages. Those were uh, tough, challenging messages. You know, Jesus, you know, John describes him in, in his prologue that he was, he was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and full of truth. You know, most of us tend to err to one side or the other, but not Jesus. Full of grace, full of truth. And at times, Jesus could be so tender and kind and loving Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Endlessly merciful and kind. But at other times, he could be as stern as steel. Never a compromise of either love or truth, mercy or justice. This passage, stern as steel. He begins by the very strong statement in verse, in 1248, 1249. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Now, it's not completely clear what exactly he's referring to with fire. You know, there's a lot of imagery in the Bible. Sometimes it's clear what the image is. Sometimes it's not so clear. The image can vary some. Sometimes fire, for example, 
refers to the presence of God. Uh, certainly in Acts 2, the presence of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, tongues of fire, sometimes purity and holiness. But perhaps most common is judgment, and most likely that's the case here. That would fit the context best. I came to bring judgment on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Now that raises a question. Um, I thought we saw last week that the first coming, he came as Savior, and the second coming, he's coming as Judge. The first coming, he came as a baby. He came as a suffering servant to die on a cross. The second coming, he's coming on a white horse to rule and to reign. And that's true. But there is an aspect of his coming, even the first time, that he came to bring judgment. And that must refer, because he did not come to condemn the world, but to, but to save the world. It must refer to the cross where sin was paid for where the wrath of God was poured out against sin on the cross, but Jesus paid that penalty of sin. Jesus bore our judgment so we could have life eternal. Most likely, that's what he's referring to. I am coming, I have come to cast fire on the earth. You know, elsewhere he says he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to die on a cross for us. Well, that's probably the point here. He came to bring judgment, but he would step in the place where we would be executed, where we would lose our lives forever, and he bore our sin. He took the penalty. He took the punishment. And that's why he said, you know, I, I wish it was time already because he, he had this, this uh, urgency. He's ready for it to be over with. Now, uh, there's a couple of reasons why that is, but the very next verse, I think, bears out that that's what he's talking about. When he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And elsewhere, he'd refer to suffering as a baptism. And uh, he's again referring to the cross. I've got this baptism to be baptized with. I've got this cross that I've got to endure. Isaiah 53 had talked about he would bear our judgment. The sins of the world would be placed on him. Your sins, my sins. And he would pay for them. But notice what he says about it. He says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. My distress is overwhelming until it is accomplished. Would that it were already kindled. Now, a few chapters later, that becomes very clear. On the night before he's crucified, Luke 22, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of you have been there with me, with others, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before he, he's crucified in 22, 42. He prays this. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's talking about the cross. The last minute he is even praying, Lord, if it would be possible, would you please remove the cross? Is there some other way? But then he goes on to pray. Yet nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. Imagine this scene, if you would. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Can you imagine? And I have been times where I've just felt overwhelmed in anguish and pain. But I've never had drops of blood uh, fall from my forehead to the ground. He has. Some of you have been in Gethsemane. You can imagine that ground soaking up the blood of Jesus in his anguish. It wasn't primarily the physical pain, though that was incredible. 
But it was the pain of bearing your sin and my sin. And being separated from his father that he is so close to. You know, last week, if you were here, I talked about how Gail and I, when we're apart, we really miss each other. You know, after about a day, you know, we're, we're missing each other a lot. Well, you know, just think about Gail and I. We're flawed folks. We don't have a perfect marriage, but we just are very close. But we're two flawed human beings. And we miss each other a lot when we're separated. Think about Jesus, the eternal son of the Father, from all eternity in heaven, a perfect, unblemished, intimate relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that is severed on the cross when your sin and mine is placed upon him, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the anguish of the cross, bearing your sin, separated from the Father. And uh, you know how it feels when you have really have a big sin. You know how you feel, the, the, the guilt, the, the conviction you've got, the, the, the heartache inside. Can you imagine taking all of your sins at once and burying them and throwing in Hitler's and Stalin's sins too and all the world and Jesus did it for you? Jesus did it for you. God proves his own love for you in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And he looks to the cross and he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He was resolute, but it was a burden. It was a burden. And he did it for you. He goes on to say, you think that I came to bring peace on the earth? I didn't. I came to bring division. And my Bible reading I'm going through in Matthew, it's a similar passage. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, in what way? That's a little bit puzzling. That doesn't sound quite like Jesus. But again, he could be as stern as steel. The grand theme of Jesus' coming was peace. He brings us peace with God. He wipes out the, the, the penalty of sin and brings us back to the Father. He brings peace with people, reconciled at the foot of the cross. He brings peace in our heart. He is the Prince of Peace. That's the grand theme. But there is a sense in which Jesus divides asunder people. And it's inevitable when you think about it, because just think about it. The destiny, the, the eternal destiny of every single human being depends on what we do with Jesus. So naturally, it's going to divide. Those who accept him will be divided from those who reject him. Those who follow him from those who, who spurn him. Those who love him from those who ignore him. He is the dividing point in human history. You know, it is okay to talk about God in polite society today, but it is not okay to talk about Jesus uh, because Jesus said things that no one ever said, such as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I can remember uh, years ago, I would be uh, invited by the Houston Marathon officials. Uh, they had this pre-race dinner. I think it was at the George R. Brown, a couple of thousand people. It was a big thing. And uh, for a long time, I, was, I did the prayer be, at, before this meal. And uh, they were very gracious about it. But one, once the executive director, who was a, a good fellow, he said to me, look, Jeff, you're kind of bothering some people praying about Jesus. Could you just kind of drop that reference to Jesus? And, you know, we're okay with God. And I said, sorry, I just can't do that. You know, this is who I am. You know, it's okay to talk about God, but it's not so okay to talk about Jesus. Jesus is a dividing point. Just think about your own family. If you are more zealous for Jesus, more 
all in for Jesus than your family members, to some extent that separates you. They don't quite like it. They're kind of uncomfortable. And that's true of your work and your neighborhood. And anybody else is a bit divisive because Jesus calls us to all-out discipleship. Um, last week, uh, one of our guests here, and uh, he was from a Muslim country and Muslim background, and he has become a believer. And uh, uh, it's been divisive in his family. I mean, talk about a devising, division point. He, uh, you know, I asked him about his dad. You know, do you see your dad anymore? No, I don't see my dad. And, and you could tell the sorrow, the sadness. His dad, you know, won't have anything to do with him. It sounds like he got with his mother some and probably secretly so that the dad wouldn't see. He's living with a brother-in-law who's kind of protecting him. But that brother-in-law's uh, wife, his sister, uh, doesn't know about his faith. It's just dividing. And he's got some cousins who are, who are trying to kill him. And they don't even know he's a full believer. They just know he's spoken against Islam. Uh, in many, many Jewish families, many, many Muslim families, uh, particularly someone comes to Jesus, it can just split the family apart. But you know what that Jesus calls us? is to be loyal to him no matter what. We don't, uh, you know, have a little secret loyalty to Jesus, and uh, if, if people don't like it, we kind of tamper down that. No way. A couple of chapters later, in fact, one chapter later, in Luke 14, this is what Jesus will say, his stern is still call to discipleship. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's Jesus. He's not calling for half-hearted loyalty and commitment. He wants all of you because he is worthy of full surrender and allegiance and loyalty. And that's what he calls us to. He doesn't really want us to hate people. He's uh, for, for, you know, for heaven's sake, the, he wants us to focus on loving God with all our heart and our neighbors ourselves. But we love God so much more that every other human relationship, including our family, feels like hate by comparison because our love and loyalty to Jesus is unparalleled. Now, is that the way you follow him? Do you shrink back if your spouse is not a Jesus follower? Do you hold back? Don't hold back. Don't hold back. Jesus is your Lord and your lover. Your parents aren't liking that you're following Jesus. Don't hold back. We follow Jesus no matter what. Some parts of the world, it could cost a life. Doesn't here, but it may cost you some flack. It is our privilege to bear a cross for Jesus. Here is the first principle. Live to please Jesus alone and not your family, not other people. This was Paul's heart, Galatians 1.10. Am, tr- am I trying to, to seek the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man, I would no longer be a, a bondservant of Christ. Live to please Jesus, not your family, not anyone else. All out for Jesus. Now, the second paragraph, uh, five different distinct paragraphs, uh, takes us a little bit differently. Interesting paragraph. He says, when you see a cloud in the west, that's from the direction of the Mediterranean, you know that a shower is coming. When you see wind from the south, that is from the desert, you know it's going to be hot. 
He says, you're great at interpreting the weather, but you don't have a clue to what's really going on around you. You don't know how to interpret the times. How trivial to know so much about the weather. You know, we know a lot about the weather. We can pull up our app and it can tell us, uh, you know, exactly at 3 a.m. tomorrow what it's going to do. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong, but we know a lot about the weather. In fact, we have so much human knowledge in hundreds and thousands of fields. It's just amazing. Uh, When I was in college, I I was a history major and took a history of medicine course. And it's amazing uh, the way medicine has developed and what it looks like today over even 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And that's true of every field of human endeavor. Human knowledge is incredible. But this is what I find. There are so many people who are brilliant in intellect and have this gaping hollowness within their soul have not a clue to what life is really all about. Do do you see that at times? Some brilliant people just go to the local university. You'll see some of it. But at your work, brilliant people, brilliant in intellect, masters of trivia, but completely missing what life is all about. Jesus said, this is what matters. This is what counts. Knowing who you are, who God is, what life is all about, what you're on the planet for. The realities of life. How do you get that? How do you get that? Well, one way, you live in this book. Uh, This book is unlike every other book. A lot of human words out there, too many out there. Internet, books, everything. But these are the words of God. And those who live in this book and soak in this book... um, They know what's going on. Uh, This book is not only timely, it's timeless. It's worth all the other books put together by far. It's worth so much more. People of wisdom, people who understand what's going on in life, they they soak in this book every day. They devour it. Oh, give me this book. They meet God in this book. Those people also, I'd say, They live by the Spirit who knows what's going on around them. They walk in the Spirit. They know that that natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolishness to him. But they ask the Spirit of God to fill them and guide them and lead them and speak to them and control them. They live in the Spirit. So they they live in this book. They live by the Spirit. Uh, Another thing about them is that they are not always with people. At times, like Jesus, they withdraw from people and meet along with God. In fact, I I hope you do that every day. But certainly, there are these seasons. If you are always surrounded by people in all your waking hours, you'll have nothing to bring to people when you're with them. You'll have no value for, for people. It is those folks who at times withdraw from people and meet with God. Meet with God in the secret place regularly. And God speaks to them and fills them up and they have something to bring to people when they come back alone with God. Those are the people who understand what life is all about. Jesus is telling us in this second movement, see beyond the superficial to the realities of life, to the foundations of life, to the real truths of what life is all about. Third paragraph, third movement takes a little bit of a different twist. He basically says, when you've got conflicts with people, get to them right away. Get them settled. You see that particularly in verse 58, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate and make an effort to settle with him on the way, 
lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. He said, get to it right away. Um, don't let disputes become lawsuits. Now, the principle would apply to every conflict in life. Marriage, you know, the people you're around the most are the people you're going to have most conflict with. Get to it. Don't let the sun go down your anger. You know, don't just uh, take the silent treatment and sulk and pout and think that's going to solve things. Uh, you got a conflict with a relative. You got a conflict with a, somebody at work. Get to it. Get to it. Somebody here at church, something in business, settle conflicts, ASAP, God's wisdom. The fourth movement. This is an unusual paragraph. Basically, some folks come to him and, uh, hey, Jesus, did you hear about the, the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices? Now, in their mind, in bringing this, they were thinking, boy, they must have really been bad sinners for that to happen to them. By the way, uh, we know from history, Pilate could be ruthless. At the end of the Gospels, it sounds like he was a little bit wimpy and a coward, and he was there, but he could be ruthless. This fits what we know about him. So uh, Pilate, apparently, with some Galilean worshipers, probably at the temple, maybe he felt they were terrorists on the side, and he slaughters them, mixed the blood with the sacrifices. They came to report this with the mindset, boy, they must really be sinners. You Remember what Jesus says to them here? He says, you think that's what's going on? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then he gave another example. He says, in the Tower of Siloam. Some of you were there a couple of weeks ago. The Tower of Siloam. It fell on 18 Jews in Jerusalem. You think they were worse sinners? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. What's he saying? He's saying, don't focus on other sinners. Don't focus on the, the, the suffering, the sin of other people. You focus on you. You repent. Your urgent need for repentance. Now, by the way, church, let's just look at this. Extensive in the, in the Jewish mindset was this mentality that if you suffered much, it must be because of your sin. Do you know that we Christians tend to think the same thing and it's not true? I hear that all the time. People are going through some hard time and, you know, I just you know, wonder what I did wrong. Well, maybe you did something wrong, but maybe you didn't. You're just living a, a world in rebellion against God and there's cancer cells and car wrecks and all kind of problems. Uh, if, you, if your sin is causing your suffering, you will know it. It won't be secret. God's not hiding it from you. For example, if you are having a string of affairs and it ruins your marriage, you know, your sin is behind that. No secret there. But you get cancer child has something wrong, all kind of things. Don't assume it's your sin. It's probably not. You know, Job's friends assumed that. They came to Job and they assumed, Job, I don't know what you've done, but your sin is behind this. You need to repent. And God didn't like that at all. He really rebukes them. In fact, we know, the reader knows in Job 1, that Job was the most blameless and upright man on all the earth. Wasn't this sin? Or in John 9, uh, the disciples encounter a man blind from birth. Do you, do you remember what they said? Who sinned? This man or his parents? They were assuming somebody's sin caused it. Jesus said, nobody sinned, but for the glory of God to be revealed in him. You know, most of your suffering is not about your sin. It is about the glory of God being revealed in you. God is doing things in your life. He is shaping you. He is making you. He is... 
uh, refining you. He's building faith. Don't be looking to the past for sin unless it's obvious. Be looking to the future for how God is going to work in your life and bring glory. So that's the, that's the theology of suffering that we see in the Bible. What Jesus is really saying here, though, is, uh, you know, not only is that wrong, but don't worry about other sinners. You focus on you. It's almost like Peter and John. Peter, you know, you don't worry about what happens to John. You focus on Peter. And so this morning, at times, we can kind of get enamored or, or uh, preoccupied with what's happening to other people. Uh, focus on you, your urgent need for repentance, repentance, brokenness before a holy God, surrender before a holy God, obedience before a holy God. Oh, God, rescue me, transform me. Um, What God calls us to is a lifestyle of repentance, a lifestyle of brokenness and surrender and prayer. You know, if you're If your life is little or no different than the non-Christian neighbors on your street or the non-Christians at your work, I mean, if you basically spend your money in the same sorts of ways, your time in the same sorts of ways, you have the same basic attitudes and values, you react to hard things by being crushed and overwhelmed, uh, that's not a lifestyle of repentance. Jesus calls us to a lifestyle of brokenness and humility before our God. You know, part of our vision here at Wood's Edge, everyone disciples, 10 disciple-making movements, so there's ongoing revival, and Houston becomes a great city of God. Now, this ongoing revival, there is no revival apart from a lifestyle of repentance. You know, the classic passage, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen: if my people will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, then I will, then I will hear their prayers, and, and I, will, uh, I will heal their land, and I will forgive their sin. A lifestyle of repentance. Has God been speaking to you about any area of your life that you need to come before Him in brokenness and repentance? Okay, one more movement, the fifth one. And verse 6, unusual again, is about a fig tree. Basically, fig tree has no fruit. The owner says, cut it down, take it up the ground. The manager of the vineyard says, hey, give it one more year. I'll, I'll water it. I'll put my fertilizer on it and just see if it, it bears fruit. And if not, let it be... Uh, let it be cut down. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is the nation of Israel. Because a fig tree, one of the symbols of Israel was the fig tree. Jesus is not talking about figs. He's not talking about plant life. He's talking about Israel. He's saying, look, Israel is largely rejecting the Messiah who's finally come. And uh, they reject him largely. He came to his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. John 1, 11. And he says, there's judgment. Uh, Turn to to a Savior now while there's hope or face a judge later. You're going to face a judge later unless you turn to a Savior now. It's available. It's available. And he's saying there's judgment coming on Israel. But yet there's mercy mixed in there. Another year. This is what happened historically. Jesus spoke in about 30 A.D. Within a generation, within 40 years... Jerusalem was completely wiped to the ground, devastated. Every stone uh, tossed down from the temple, just like Jesus tells us in, in Luke 21. And judgment on their sin. You can go today to the old city of Jerusalem, to the western wall, the only original stones from the time of Jesus, right in there in terms of the wall. 
You can go down from the western wall that you see on the media, down a couple of hundred yards, and there are a bunch of enormous stones from that day that are still left in a big heap because the archaeologists are letting us see what happened when the Romans, when the Romans burned Jerusalem to the ground. The devastation, 66 to 70 A.D. And at that time, Israel was scattered to the winds, never again to have a nation until 1948 in our day. Judgment was coming. The fig tree was cut down. But God's heart was mercy because people were so precious to him. We saw this last week in 2 Peter 3, 9. And God is not slow about his promise. There's some kind of slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. He wants your neighbors, the clerks at H-E-B, the homeless folks that you might see, the, the wealthy folks in the wealthy neighborhood. Every single person is so precious to God that he sent his son to die on the cross for them. And there is urgency. There is urgency. These last two paragraphs especially, you see the urgency for people to turn to Christ. Not just ourselves, but our neighbors, our top five people we work with and people we live with. Now I think that uh, uh, outside the Bible, C.S. Lewis has stated this the best in terms of how precious people are. And in one of his books, The Weight of Glory, this is what he writes. Some of you have heard this before, many of you have. He says this about people. It's hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about the glory of our neighbor. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He says, all day long, we are to some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Well, that would change some politics. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. Every human being is so precious to God, made in God's image, and they must be precious to us. I say in the first service, Jamie and Don are down in front, that one of the things I most appreciate about Jamie that I've learned from him is heart for lost people. They are so precious. They matter so much. And I want them to matter like that to me. Elsewhere, Lewis, uh, you probably haven't heard this quote. He talks about the same thing briefly when he says, the Christian will take literature a little less seriously than the culture pagan. Now, let me remind you, uh, C.S. Lewis was an incredible literary icon. Running buddy of J.R.R. Tolkien of the Hobbit and the Fellowship of the Rings trilogy. In fact, Tolkien was mostly the human most used to bring Lewis to Christ. They were both brilliant Oxford professors, brilliant beyond words. And they were scholars. 
And they involved their whole life. They gave their lives to literature and that sort of thing. He says, for the Christian, they'll take it a little less seriously than the cultured pagan. He says, it won't mean so much to me. He goes on. He says, the Christian knows from the outset that the salvation of a single soul is more important than all the production and preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. Now, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying you can take all the great literature in the world. You know, if we found a, a new writing of Shakespeare, people would fall all over themselves to spend $500 million to buy that thing. If we found a new Rembrandt hidden in somebody's attic, people would just go bananas about that. Just fall over themselves. If we found a new composition that Beethoven had penned, people would just go crazy. But that's all they've got. And we know, as C.S. Lewis says, that all of the epics and all of the paintings and all of the music in the world put together is not worth the value of a single solitary human being. And that includes your neighbors who are grumpy. And the obnoxious co-worker down the hall. And the homeless man at that corner. And the people checking you out at H-E-B. And the unborn babies down in the land, and the homeless, every other single person. They are so precious. And there's such an urgency about our lives that they must be precious to us. You've never met an ordinary person. This past week, this passage was gripping me about this, and I get a text from Debs Walker in our church. Most of you know Josh and Debs Walker. have got a marvelous ministry to to some of the, the folks that have been marginalized in our society, whether not folks in the jails, homeless, little kids left abandoned on the streets down in Montrose, other sort of ways, they uh, mobilize and reach out to, for these folks. Debs sent this text. She said, in the next couple of weeks, I'm hoping to start a, big, a bag drive amongst the Woods Edge ladies. We desperately need weekender-sized bags to give to the ladies we meet at the bus station downtown who have just been released from jail and prison. He says, they come out with the bags in the photo below and also in their jail clothes. These jail bags are basically a neon sign for human traffickers to pick them up at the bus station. We have been meeting them there straight off the bus, giving them a change of clothes and a bus ticket help. We pray with them, feed them, and let them call a family member. The first people they meet out of jail should be kingdom people, not human traffickers. If we can change their bags right away, they can try to start a new life and not be a target. And then she closes with this great line. If it's writing with C.S. Lewis, she says, please pray with us, not only for bags, but for volunteers to come with us to bless these precious people. And that's where it starts. Not saying women who've been in prison, but these precious people. And we see all people like that. And there's an urgency about us. And I hope you're doing something about the precious people around you. Maybe you're holding babies in a nursery so a mom can come in here and worship. Maybe you're helping with some student ministries or adult Bible studies. Maybe you're working to, to rescue unborn kids. Maybe you're working to help the poor threads on Wednesdays and Thursday nights. Uh, but there's got to be some way that we're involved up to the neck and loving precious people for Christ's sake. So what's God saying to you today? We're not hearers, but doers. Is it live to please Jesus alone, not 
living for your family, other people, seeing beyond the superficial to the, to the realities of what God is doing because you live in the Bible, because you're filled with the Spirit, because you take time alone with God? Is it settle conflicts ASAP? That's a fun one. Is it don't focus on the sin of others, but your own urgent need for repentance? Or is it that last one, repent now before judgment comes. Seek to lead others to Jesus before judgment comes. Just ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do in response? Just bow your head. Just ask him, Lord, what's my response to you? I know mine. Stand with me, please. Lord God, you are so gracious and merciful. Thank you that you do not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Lord, if there are some precious, precious people in this room who've been relying on their religion, their churchianity to get into heaven, Lord, I pray right now they'd flee to a Savior who died for their sin. If that's you, friend, just breathe a prayer and say, yes, Jesus, come and save me. He'll do it. He'll do it. He did it. He just did it. Lord, for the rest of us, we want to uh, be all in for you, whatever that means. Give us grace. Give us grace. We love you. Love you.